It's good to be back with you all this morning. We had move this a little bit. There we go. Family enjoyed some time away last week, but are thankful to be back this week. And we turn to Zechariah chapter three. It is the next vision that the Lord gave Zechariah, and this vision is one of a courtroom drama that we will look to. It's a scene that is a vision that is ripe with meaning and connection to all parts of Scripture. And if we were in a Sunday school setting with more time and more dialogue, we would trace them all. This morning we don't have that time or that dialogue and we are not going to cover everything, but we are going to stay centered at the heart of this passage, which is very much the heart of the gospel. Let me pray. Ask the Lord's blessing on the reading and preaching of His Word. Would you bow with me? Father, as we come to this text, I ask that you would, by the enlightenment of your Spirit, cause it to come alive in our, our minds and our hearts that we might see the depths of your love for us and that we might be drawn into a new and deeper relationship with you through Jesus Christ, our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen. Friends, this is the inerrant and infallible word of God. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Then the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Did you ever have the dream where you show up to work or to school in your underwear? 
Maybe I shouldn't ask, do you ever have that dream? It's more of a question of how often do you have that dream? We have that dream because there's something behind that dream. (laughs) What is it? I would guess it is a fear that you and I, we all share. It's the fear of being exposed. There's a lot of versions of that fear of being exposed. Maybe it's the fear of not being smart enough. Maybe it's the fear of not being loving enough. Maybe it is ultimately the fear of being known because we know what is in the depths of our hearts. All of those fears go back to one issue. Exposure of the heart. Why is that such a deep fear for us? Well, maybe it's because we know what lies beneath. We know that if people could really see what was on the inside, they would run. So maybe the fear of being exposed is really a fear of not being loved. People saw what was on the inside. There's no way they could love us. And so that fear of being exposed because we are afraid of not being loved causes us to wear all sorts of masks. Not merely the kind that would protect us or protect others from our germs, but masks that would mask what we know to be on the inside. Costumes that we put forward. Facial expressions that hide the fear beneath. It's all forms of playing it safe. But do you see that in this mask wearing, this playing it safe, we're really engaging in this vicious cycle of self-focus. And in the vicious cycle of self-focus, we cannot love. We cannot love God. We cannot love others. This text, it speaks to that fear. It speaks to the fear of being exposed. It speaks to the fear of being known, not by offering us coping mechanisms, but by disarming that fear altogether, pointing us to the cleansing love of God. Listen, as we explore this text, I want you to notice something. I want you to notice how differently this scene plays out than your dreams. Notice what's different in this text than what you imagine in your dreams. First thing we need to do is we need to set the scene. Uh, To set the scene, we need to understand why Joshua, why the high priest... First of all, you've got to know that the importance of Joshua, the high priest, extends beyond himself. Because he is called to stand before the Lord for the purpose of representing the people and mediating on their behalf. So when we see Joshua, we need to see beyond Joshua to the people whom he is called to represent. The people of Jerusalem in that day and us in this day. 
As we do so, we'll find that God's love for Joshua is then representative of His love for His people. But that's only the first part of the setting the scene is understanding who Joshua is. We've also got to understand that this scene is set in a courtroom, if you will. Joshua, the high priest, stands before the angel of the Lord, one whom many associate with the pre-incarnate Christ. And the angel of the Lord in this courtroom drama stands before Joshua as the judge. Yet at his right side is the prosecuting attorney, Satan. Satan playing the role of accuser, a role that he plays best and we know most vividly. Of all his roles, this role of accuser is quite possibly the most sinister. And this is why. Because his accusations always have some basis in truth. Why do we fear being exposed Because we know what's in our heart. We know the thought life that sometimes we indulge in and sometimes we try and run from. We know the sin patterns of our present and the darkness of our past. We know what is deep within. And we fear that others will find out, and the accuser preys on those fears. He preys on half-truths. Now, I call it a half-truth for a very important reason. Because that half-truth is indeed based in some form of truth. But the half-truth that the accuser preys on exposes the filth of our sin, but it stops there. It denies the whole truth of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we listen to the accuser and miss out the whole truth of the gospel, we find ourselves hiding. Now, you and I, we know this voice of the accuser. And we know it before it even speaks. Interestingly, in this text, there's mention of the accuser, but he doesn't have to voice the accusation. It's standing before all to see. Joshua is standing in the holy place, soiled. This mention of filthy clothes, the word filthy doesn't quite capture what's going on here. It's not that Joshua forgot to run his robe through the washing machine before he showed up for work that day. The word filthy captures something more vivid. Filthy refers to sewage, excrement, feces. Do you see the picture of sin? that is being painted for us in this vision. Joshua, the high priest, is standing in the holy place wearing the equivalent of a dirty diaper inside out. That thought turns our stomach. And that's the image of sinful man in the presence 
of a holy God. The accuser's job is done for him. He does not have to say a word. He just stands there with a smug look on his face. But when we come to verse 2, at the very beginning of this text, the angel of the Lord wipes the smirk off his face with a powerful rebuke. The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. There's a scene in The Lion, the Wish, and the Wardrobe. The movie version captures it well as the white witch comes into the camp to accuse Edmund. Aslan gathers her off to the side and as he sends her out, she turns around to question Aslan and he yells out a mighty roar that knocks her back in her seat. In this courtroom, it's not Aslan. It's the angel of the Lord who silences the accuser before he ever has an opportunity to speak. The angel of the Lord is a mighty advocate. And you and I need to hear the content of His roar. After all, what could He say? What could He say to the accuser when the accused is standing in His courtroom wearing soiled clothing? The offense is there for all to see and to smell. The angel roars. The angel roars a rebuke not because Joshua is innocent, but because he is chosen. Listen up, friends. If you are to ever understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, you must understand this. The Lord does not argue the relative merits of the case. Instead, the angel of the Lord looks on Joshua and says, Mine. Mine. The Lord is rebuking the accuser not because Joshua is innocent, but because he is chosen, which means he is rebuking the accuser because Joshua is loved. This passage will speak as clearly as any text in all of Scripture to the cleansing that you and I have in Jesus Christ. But do not miss this. God's love comes first. Amen? God's love comes first. It's not that God says, I will clean Him up first and then He will be acceptable and then I will love Him. No. He declares His love, and out of His love, He makes Him clean. And Joshua, the high priest, in this text, is representative of the people of God of all time. Joe Novenson is a pastor in Lookout Mountain, Tennessee, Georgia, I'm not sure which to be honest with you, but he has pastored me from a distance for years as I've listened to his preaching. And Joe would tell the story of uh, his first year of marriage shortly after his wedding when his, his hands were crushed in an industrial accident. As a result of this, he underwent a series of surgeries that required him for a period of a year to have at all times his hands extended above his heart. 
If you imagine that, it means that he, his hands were rendered useless for the most basic of human functions. Your mind can go in a lot of different directions on what those most basic of human functions might be, but Joe tells a story about every time they would go to eat, and he would have to go to the bathroom. His wife, would, his young bride, would have to check to make sure no one was in the restroom, and she would go in with him because one of those most basic of human functions that his new bride had to perform for him was to wipe him after going to the bathroom. Without fail, his wife would look to him and tell him, I love you. Joe talked about this and said he would wade through hell with a water pistol for his wife. He loved her because he knew in tangible ways the love that she had for him. Friends, that is the picture of the Savior's love for you. A love that came first, that preceded the cleansing. The Lord declared His love for Joshua first and then cleansed him. And the angel ordered the filthy clothes removed and pure vestments given Don't you see in this imagery in the Old Testament in Zechariah the picture of Jesus on the cross? That on the cross, He who knew no sin became sin. Our sin, our filthy garments were put on Him and in return He gave us His perfect righteousness. This is the Gospel pointing forward to the One who would come. And it is a cleansing that is rooted in election. Friends, this is not a point meant to give you armament for a theological debate. This is meant to show you very clearly that the atonement of Jesus Christ is rooted in the love of God, the eternal love of God. Think back on Joshua and know that Joshua and his cleansing represents more than just him. Think back on Joe. Think about yourself. What is this reality of God's love? His cleansing love. What does that reality do for your heart? How might it change your fear of being exposed? Joshua represents the people. God's love for Joshua represents His love for us. That is the first and main point that I want to bring out of this text. But there is a second that Joshua points us forward to the better mediator, Jesus Christ. In verse 8, we see that Joshua and his friends are men who were to be a sign. These men were the priests. And God is speaking of the priesthood and their existence after the exile. 
is a sign of God's intention to bless His people. But then he goes on to say in verse 9, or he goes on to speak of His servant, the branch. And then in verse 9, he speaks of the stone. Friends, this promise, though Joshua and his fellow priests were a sign of, of God's intention to bless His people, that blessing would not ultimately come through them. But it would come through the servant, the branch, the stone. It's all pointing us to Jesus Christ. The listeners in Zechariah's day would have most certainly known and recognized the vivid imagery of this prophecy that is given to us most clearly in Isaiah. In Isaiah 42.1, the Lord says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. The Lord is speaking of His Son. The suffering servant. In this section of Isaiah, there are a series of psalms. Songs offered to and about the suffering servant. The one who would come. The Lord Jesus Christ. Then in Isaiah 11.1, we read passages that you know well. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Jesse was the father of David. But David was not the branch. The branch was the king who would come. The greater David, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in Isaiah 28.16, the Lord said, Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. Prince Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. He is the cornerstone upon whom our faith rests and upon whom the church rests. Jesus is the true and better Joshua. He is the high priest who, as Hebrews 9 tells us, entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood. Thus securing an eternal redemption, Jesus is the better Joshua. Jesus is the servant. Jesus is the royal branch. Jesus is the priestly stone. Jesus is our Redeemer. And the angel of the Lord, most likely the pre-incarnate Christ is spelling out the implications of the Gospel for Joshua. Of God's love for him and what that love would mean for Joshua in terms of his life. Spelling out the implications of the gospel for Joshua in terms of obedience. Obedience to his calling. An obedience to mediate on behalf of the people. Promising him that through his obedience, his very prayers would find an audience. And he goes on to tell us the implications of the gospel for us in terms of our love for our neighbor. 
where we will invite our neighbor to come under our vine and under our fig tree. It is an implication of love and gospel proclamation that is founded on the eternal love of God. Friends, think about this call to obedience and love in terms of the main point of this passage. This passage shouts the gospel. It tells us of the indication of how we are loved by God and who we are in Christ. And then as it shouts that indication, it whispers the imperative application. Obey. Obey the Lord Jesus Christ. And love your neighbor. Is that application? Is certainly found in the text. But if we jump there too quickly, we miss the main point. So think about this call to obey. Think about this call to love in the context of this clear declaration of God's love for us. We've already said that the fear of being exposed is equivalent to an indication of the fear of not being loved. And you and I, every one of us, long to be loved. The truth of the Gospel is that God loves His own. And He has from before the beginning of time. Do you remember Joe? He saw his wife's love for him and he would do anything for her. It's the response. It's the response that is the only appropriate response to knowing how deeply the Father has loved us. Our obedience to the commands of God are the equivalent of our responding in love. This is the call of the gospel. It's the call of the gospel. Yet it is opposed. The accuser, he would have us question the love of God. The accuser would put stipulations on our obedience. The accuser always focuses on the half-truths of our sin. Because the accuser would do anything he can to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. But you and I, I pray, know the truth of the Word of God that nothing, nothing can separate us from His love. Yet when we lose sight of the Gospel, we're prone to fall prey. Martin Luther was the mouthpiece of the Reformation. He spoke if not the most eloquently, the most loudly. As the Lord raised up a generation that would return the people back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Luther stood for this gospel and there was a time in in the year 1521 after a particularly intense period of his ministry where he was seeking refuge in in Wartburg Castle. It's time of of prayer, a time of study, a time of writing, but it also was a time of great spiritual attack. And Luther wrote about that attack one day, wrote about a dream he had had to his friend Philip. 
In his writing, he he spoke of Satan appearing before him with a long scroll. And on that scroll was listed out every single one of Luther's sins, one by one. Satan read out this list to Luther, mocking him for his desire to serve the Lord, standing there with this smug look on his face, trying to convince him, It's all for naught because one day, Luther, your sins will catch up with you and you are going to be wasting away in hell. Luther agonized over this accusation until finally he jumped up and yelled out, it's all true, Satan, and many more sins which I have committed in my life which are known to God only. But write this at the bottom of your list, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. And Luther, in the way that only Luther could do, stood up and took the bottle of black ink and threw it at the wall where he imagined his accuser to stand. Satan fled. He was left with the black ink stain on the wall to serve as a reminder of the encounter with his accuser and the victory of his Savior. Friends, in Zechariah, we too have a reminder We have a reminder of the half-truth of our accuser, of the eternal love of the Father, and of the cleansing blood of Jesus. It is a vivid picture with a much-needed reminder that there is no sin so great as to separate us from the love of God. The whole truth of the Gospel, friends, is that Jesus Christ came. He made us clean. Friends, receive this truth in faith. Respond to it with love. And let it silence the voice of your accuser. Would you bow with me? Father, we praise You for Your love. We praise You for the reminder of Your love. We praise You for the cleansing that we have in Jesus Christ. We praise You for the call that You place on our lives to respond to Your love by loving You in return and loving our neighbor. Father, paint this imagery in our hearts that we might know You are a God who loves You're a God who cleans. Give us hearts of response, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.